Hey y'all, welcome back to Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa and I'm your host. Today we're chatting with absolutely love her voice, Jill Phillips. Um, she's goes by the author name J.M. Phillips. She actually wrote a wonderful book about the year of her life growing up on a street in England called Lamblash Street. And it's an amazing conversation about how, you know, it's important to listen to the stories being passed down generation to generation because before too long, you're missing out on that history. I know part of me really resonated with this book because my dad was a storyteller in our family. My dad could remember things from a long time ago and I can still listen to him and hear his voice telling us stories and we've lost him like four years ago like five years ago actually and so I really miss sitting down at his feet and actually having a conversation with him and listening to the stories of growing up so if there's anything that I want you to get out of this interview is it's important to be there and listen to family stories and to be able to pass those stories down to your own kids so with that said you know what i need you to do right now that's right start listening Welcome to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today, I'm joined from across the pond, right? Um, Jill Phillips. She is an author, and she wrote the book Lamb Last Street. And it's about a whole, basically a whole year in your life growing up in the 1960s. So, Jill, before we dig into your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I've always been somebody that wanted to do something I've never done before. Uh, as a result of which, I um, I did my graduate degree when I was 50. Um, I did my occupational therapy degree in my 30s. Uh, nobody else in the family had done any degrees of any kind. Um, I immigrated to Canada in my 30s, was there for 30 years. Um, and I decided um, after I'd written my thesis, and I did a thesis because I'd never done one of those before either, that I, I might try and write a book. There's a bit more to it than that because it's really around my uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncle passed away in 2011 and um, three or four months before he died, he said to me, oh, I've written down some of my war stories. I'd like to have them in a book. I thought, oh, that's a nice idea. And then the poor man passed on. And then I found some of his notes afterwards after he passed on. And I thought, you know, I'd like to write a book. And then he left us a small inheritance, myself and my brother. And from that money, um, I had a a book coach um, because I'd never written a book before. I didn't think I'd ever get to to finish the thing. Um, And I wrote a little bit about uncle's stories, but then I also started writing about Lamlash Street in the 1960s, 1963. 
uh, and end up writing about a year in Lamlash Street, which was 1962 to 1963. And that was a year in which um, there was a lot of family upheaval and turmoil. Uh, the family changed just in those 12 months tremendously. And so um, I ended up writing it. But again, I did it because I've never done it before. So that's mm -hmm. sort of the theme for my whole life. I like to do things that I haven't done before. And you know, life's too short, you know, not to do those types of things. So what you already said this book was based on your life in the 1960s. So we're talking about family storytelling. So let's talk about how important family storytelling is before we dive into the book, because that's one of the things that when I stood out to me when you were when I got your bio and stuff was family storytelling, because my dad was a family storyteller in our family. And unfortunately, he passed on. And so there's really nobody to really pass down those stories anymore. So how important is that? Well, at this point in my life, it's terribly important. Um, my mum passed away just in January of this year from COVID. And uh, my dad passed away two years ago. Like I said, my uncle passed away in 2011. And uh, three years ago, one of my aunts passed away. And that's the last of that generation. But what I can remember growing up, when you go to weddings, christenings, all those family get-togethers, what I remember the most is the aunts, the three, the, the my Aunt Mary, Aunt Ellen and my mum, the three sisters, sitting together, telling family stories, talking about the old days and what happened. And I guess as I was getting older myself, I was aware of the fact that I said, I'd love to write these down because I just can't, you can't remember all these stories. And so what happened was I wrote down the stories I could remember. And like I said, as, as the family, mum was the youngest, so as the older, um, there were 10 brothers and sisters. So as the older family members were, were disappearing, I recognized that, I, that nobody had written down these stories. They were great storytellers, but it was all verbal. Nobody had ever written anything down. And so I thought, well, I really would like to at least remember some of those special times, those little stories, the funny little stories that they talk about and the little bits of scandal and all these sorts of things that, that families talk about, you know, when they're at weddings and that. Um, and uh, so that, that was really what started me on this journey. I, I wanted to remember it before it was gone. Um, Dad died of Alzheimer's in the last mm. year. He could not remember anything at all. Um, and I realized, I thought, if I don't get these stories done now, and then mum was my major research assistant because she knew all the backgrounds to all these stories. Mm. And I talked to other family members as well. So it's, it's really, for me, it's a nice way to to pay tribute to what they did in, in those days, how we had come from a very poor working class background and I had more of a middle class experience as did my brother. Um, and like I said, my uncle and auntie passed on their inheritance to myself and my, my brother. And obviously mum's gone now and her house has now been passed down to us. But when you think that when mum was um, born, Basically, they, they, they couldn't afford anything. It was secondhand shoes, secondhand clothes. The house in which they lived in Penrose Street had, um, it was shared kitchens with other families. The only running water was, um, you go up the stairs from the ground floor up to stairs, and apparently in the corner, there was like a corner sink with, with cold water tap. That was the only plumbing in the whole house. There was nothing else. Uh, and there were 10 of them, 10 children, and, and for the adults, 12 of them. And obviously the, the, the outhouse, the toilet, was down at the bottom of the garden. But that's what she was raised in. So mum was determined we were not going to be, um, have a life as she had had. 
And so we never had secondhand clothes. We used to go to Marks and Spencers all the time to get new clothes. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it, it was, I really wanted that tribute to be to documented um, because I know with families, some families value family stories mm-hmm. and some parts of the family really don't want to know about it. So at least this way it's documented, it's out there, it's in the public eye. Um, if somebody gets something from it personally, oh, that's tremendous. But it's really just to get my family stories out there before they all disappear, and that's what would have happened. So what made you decide to publish it, though? Well, number one, I'd never done that before. <laughs> so that was partly my motivation. It's like, I've never published a book. Um, I also... As I just said, I also wanted the story to get um, beyond just the family members because uh, some families will talk about the stories over and over again. And our family doesn't really do that anymore. I think that last generation did that. We don't really sit around talking about the good old days. So I wanted it to get out there. Um, And it's been interesting. I had, um, I thought when I, when it was published, that it would be mainly a, a 60s and over type book um you know the good old days and oh do you remember when we had the tin bath and do you remember when you know we used to do this and oh yes those wonderful christmas parties we had with the radiogram and the the needle on the record bouncing up and down all those sorts of reminiscence things but also what's happened is um the sort of the, the teenage years are looking at these books as well and they're saying oh my goodness me i didn't realize how bad things were in those days and I think that was one of my motivations as well, because I, I could see, obviously, that looking back, that we have so much more now than we ever had, when, you know, all those years ago, 50, 60 years ago, and certainly when my parents were growing up. And I wanted people to remember those days the way they were. And so when you're looking back and you're thinking about, oh, I don't know why those people did this or made that decision, really the whole day for example laundry was the whole day so if you look at what women were doing with their time they were trying to get food and they were trying to keep the house clean and like laundry as I said was a whole of Monday whereas now we just take a pod throw it into the machine and press a few buttons Mm -hmm. very different lifestyle so I wanted that historical piece to be out there as well so that's partly why I published it really uh, you're talking about laundry. You kept saying your mom was like shopping and things like that. And the one part in the book that really stood out to me was that your mom had to always dress to the nines whenever she went to the, to even to the grocery store and she would have the stiletto heels where her stiletto heel would get oh, caught yes. and you guys would have to get up. Was that not dangerous? Oh yes, I know, but that wasn't the point in her life, really. <laughs> she came from such a poor, poor background that she was determined to be smart. You know, clothes maketh the man and the women, but they weren't mentioned, right? Um, but yet, no, you had to be smart. Um, even so, you know, like a few months before mom passed on, I, I came in one day and with COVID and that, you know, it's hard to get your hair cut, right? So I walked in, it was a bad hair day, and she said, about time you've got your hair cut, you know. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> even to the very last, she was very particular. Always well, even last year, beautiful little tops and trousers and that she would wear, always very, very particular about how she looked. Um, but I think that's um, that was her way, I think, of us having a better life than she had. I think that's, that's really what that was all about. Yeah. So you talk about growing up um, post-World War II London and 
some of the things that you were talking about when your mom used to be the bonds would drop and your mom and your sister would have to run and hide. So let's talk about that. Yes, I was, that, was, that surprised me. I learned a lot. That's the other reason why I'd encourage people to, to go through this process. Even if you don't publish, at least get the stories down on paper. Because I was talking to mum one day. I said, oh, mum, you were evacuated during the war. So it wasn't safe in London. So all the children were moved away with strangers, basically, and sort of put in their houses for a year. And she, I said, do you have any stories of when you were evacuated? She said, well, she said, um, the first people she, they, it was my aunt, and my aunt Ellen and mum, two sisters, one 10, one 13. She said, uh, one day when we came home from school, she said, we were just walking through the field. She said, we just had school uniform on, heading over to the farmhouse where we were staying. And she said, we heard this noise behind us and we turned around and we looked up and she said, we could see this fighter pilot was heading towards us. And she said, it got so close, she said, that, um, that she could see the, the it, was, it had dark hair and it was clean shaven, so she could see the person's face and he fired on them. So they were strafed, you know, they, 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 the bullets hit the ground by the side of them. And, she, and I said, well, what happened then? She said, oh, well, we just ran into the, the Brussels sprouts patch and then fortunately he flew over the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, oh, well, wasn't that frightening? She, I said, well, what did the people say that you were living with? Well, she said, we went on and we told her, so we were really, really you know, upset myself and, and your aunt. And she said, they said, um, so did the, the bullets hit you? They said, no, no. I said, well, that's okay then. You just go on in there and you have supper. And that was pretty much it. Wow. No more than... You know, okay, well, you're still alive, move on, you know, you're, you're done with. So, um, very different days. Now, I didn't know that. There was lots of little things like that that I learned because I, what I would say to mum was, um, although mum, I'm just writing the story about, you know, when you were evacuated, as, as the example just showed. And I said, do you have any other, you know, like little bits? Oh, yes, well, you would never guess what happened next. And, and so it was a really nice time to connect. Um, and I wrote down a few notes about the stories and afterwards I'd, I'd actually fill the notes out a little bit more. But it was, I learned so much about her and I understand about, um, there were some decisions made in 1962 and 63 about moving. Mm-hmm. And I really at the time thought it was really unfair that I had to move and leave my friends and, and family. But having talked to mum about what happened and what I was writing, she, I understand now, they really had no choice at all. Um, she, they'd either stay there and starve or they had to move on. Uh, it came at a terrible price to the family uh, because we lost contact with a lot of people. But nonetheless, um, I think for years I had resented that a little bit, thinking, well, I don't understand, it's not fair. And then after I spoke to mum, I thought, you know what, I probably would have done the same thing if it had been up to me. You really had no choice at all. If you want to look after your kids and keep food on the table, that's what you got to do, you know. So it was helpful for me to understand some of the things that mum and dad did. So now that we're talking about the book, do you want to read a passage from your book? Oh, yes. Okay, yes. Um, yeah, you mentioned it earlier. So I, I was wondering which passage to choose. So um, I thought I'd choose the one where it sort of sets the scene. Um, it's early on in the book. And it's when I was born. So it's called um, The Family is, is the second chapter. So... As for my beginnings, I was born at the General Lying-In Hospital, just across from Waterloo Station. Mum tells me that I was a difficult birth and that she was in labour for three whole days, during which time she lay in bed 
looking up through the basement window of the delivery room of the hospital, watching the red double-decker buses go by outside. When I finally emerged into the world with the aid of a pair of forceps, I apparently had terrible red marks and bruises all over my face. Now, of course, mum could equally well have described it as a wonderfully a blissful birth, but she did not believe in sugarcoating these significant life events. One of her favorite maxims to live by was to call a spade a spade. As a 10-year-old girl who loved to ride my bike and was generally a tomboy, I was somewhat questionably matched with a mother who loved to dress me up like a china doll in frilly dresses and shiny black patent leather shoes with one-inch kitten heels, but I did my best to have one foot in each of these worlds at the same time. I avoided the china doll persona and escaped mum's influence to some extent by going to school, playing on the streets with my friends and getting the girly obligations dealt with as early as possible in the day. This freed me up to do the more interesting things in life, such as playing with my Lego set. I would spend all my pocket money on Lego pieces and then spend hours assembling them into houses as scenery for my train set, much to the disappointment of my mum, who could not understand why I ignored the china doll in her pram, sitting by itself in the empty hallway and gathering dust by the front door. I love that. That's actually one of the things that I was thinking about um, my daughters when I read that certain point um, part of the book, because they were not China dolls. I mean, they would play with the babies, but then they would also play with Legos and other things. Like I have a daughter now that's going um, finishing out her interior architecture. And she knew at the very beginning of like two or three years old, she wanted to build. That was you get her a thing of Legos and she could build and she'd be happy for the rest of the day. It could, didn't matter. And so I never pushed on there. Did you ever feel like your mom pushed you to be a girly girl? Or did you feel like finally she came to accept that you weren't going to be like that? Uh, no, she didn't really accept it. No. <laughs> That's for sure. No, I mean, she wasn't rude or obstructive. It wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. But I think she was a little disappointed. Um, because she had, because when I was born, I had blonde curly hair, and it's like, oh, I got this gorgeous little girly girly. And then I would go out riding my bike and um, play with my brother with his scale electrics racing set and all these sorts of things. But what the, you have to remember as well, and that's why I, I sort of put it in there, is the context of the time. 1960, if um, almost everybody I knew, all their mums were stay at home mums, nobody worked outside the home. Um, they had worked outside the home during World War II, but the government had encouraged the women to go back into the household so that the war heroes coming back from war could take the jobs that were available. And so it was really unusual in those days for a woman to even work more than part-time. You also have to remember in those days that if a woman was pregnant, say she was in a, a typist position, secretary, mm -hmm. If she was pregnant, she was promptly sacked as soon as she got pregnant and nobody complained about it. Um, I can remember a time when uh, mum wanted to buy some furniture. So we went up to the store and she picked out this piece of furniture and she wanted to pay for it on higher purchase. We'd call it a loan now, basically. Mm -hmm. 
So she filled out the form and she qualified because she'd had, I think she had a part-time job, so she qualified financially. And she got down to the bottom of the form and then, um, so she filled it all out, signed it, handed it back to the, the guy in the store. And he said to her, okay, ma'am, you need to take, madam, you need to take this home now for your husband to sign. And she said, what? <laughs> he said, uh, your husband, you're married, I'm, yes. Your husband has to sign the form before we can process it. Well, she went through the roof. You would never believe, oh, she was not happy with this idea at all. And she really, for five minutes then, she was shouting at this man and, and eventually we both traipsed out and I just followed and said nothing. Um, but that was, in the time, that was considered normal and appropriate and there was absolutely nothing wrong with that type of behaviour. Um, and in those days, women were not, even if women were doing the same job, work as a man, they were paid less because the breadwinner was the man. So when you put it in those contexts, you begin to understand, in a sense, um, why when I was playing my Lego bricks, my mum thought this was the weirdest thing going because that wasn't the way things were. And the other thing you have to bear in mind is we were from a, a working class background, not highly educated, not silly people, but academically not a lot of, you know, outside mm -hmm. influence. And the men very much ruled the, um, the roost, basically. The women could do the cooking, the cleaning and the child rearing, but everything else the men made decisions about. So that, and also I actually put that in the book as well. There's an, uh, an episode in there where um, there's a, an issue with the factory and the men were really not happy about this issue. And mum really wanted to chip in and, and contribute to, to see you know, what she could do to make things better. But she recognised, no, no, the men were going to deal with this and she had absolutely no right to interfere. And what was interesting about her is that she was one of the few women who even thought that she should even be interested in it. The other women were saying, oh, well, it's up to the men now. Whatever they decide, we'll just do that. So mum was a very independent-minded lady. So I was always a bit surprised that she was surprised that I was independent-minded as well. So <laughs> to me, it's like the apple didn't fall that far from the tree, you know? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and plus, too, your dad worked long hours, so your mom kind of had to make the decisions, didn't she? Because you were talking about when he was a cabbie, he would drive for almost 12 hours. He'd be gone for almost 12 hours a day. He did. Um, he used to leave about 10 in the morning. And he would get back by about 10 in the evening. So my bedtime was obviously a lot earlier than that. I barely saw him, really. Um, when he was Before he was working in a, a warehouse. Um, so I used to see a bit more of him then because he would finish work around about 5 and then he'd be home for supper. But no, we, um, when Dad became a cabbie, then that was it. We didn't see him again. The money came in. Mum spent the money and Dad went out to work. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. I mean... Now, I was very determined that this is the way things were going to be because it was all about the children, all about the children's future. And she was very determined about that. Yes. One thing that really struck out to me about the book was the fact that you had traditions like you had routines every like on Fridays, you would go get fish and chips on Sar Saturdays was the bath time. Right. And you you guys were always the first ones to get in the bath and and then you would switch out the waters. That was something different that your mom would do after you and your brother had the bath. She would switch out the water so that the, her, your dad and her could have their baths. Whereas in most places, everybody just took the bath in the same waters. Let's talk about that. The, the yeah, no, that, that, yeah, because even to this very day that I would never dream of sharing bath water with anybody. Um, it's, it's like, oh, no, no, you don't do that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's quite funny. Um, 
but yeah, no, mum was determined we were going to do things a certain way. Um, now you have to remember her, her father was a regimental sergeant major, a drill sergeant. And there were, um, I think it was six boys and four girls in the house. And he ran the house like they were all soldiers. And I think one of the reasons we had such a set schedule is that that's the way mum was raised. So Friday night was definitely fish and chip night. And we had an allowance for, for candies, for sweets. So we would go to Mrs. Williams' the sweet shop and go and get our, our candies from there. Sunday, Saturday was the only day we were allowed to stay in bed late. It was, uh, we were allowed to stay in bed as late as 11 in the morning because we could read our, our comics, our magazines, our children's magazines, basically, Bunty and Judy, and um, I think it was Eagle. It was the other one that my brother had. So, and then Monday was always laundry day and a bubble and squeak for supper because that was left over from the roast from the day before. Always had a Sunday roast, without fail, definitely had a Sunday roast. Um, so, yeah, no, that was, I think mum thought that the um, the organisation was good for a family life and for children. Um, I think, I mean, I, I don't think I quite did it that way when I had mine. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it worked. And it did give me a sense of security. And I knew each day what would happen. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a different way of doing things. But mum was, she didn't ask permission for anything. Mum just said, no, this is the way we're going to do this now. I was like, oh, right, mum. <laughs> so that was it, no? So basically there was no talking back at all. And your mom kept an eagle eye on both you and your brother. Oh, children should be seen and not heard, you know. So um, anytime you had any opinions or you, you never raised your voice. It was just even if you said the wrong thing at the wrong time. So Children should be seen and not heard, and that's the end of it. And they thought, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> you just disappear for a bit. <laughs> now, there's a part in the book that I, I was, we talked about it right before we got on, is I was getting your first kiss with Anthony and that, how it, long it took for you to actually get that. So let's talk about that, because I think it's really funny that you're almost to the point where you were almost getting your first kiss and your mom looked out the window and saw you. Let's talk about what was going through your mind at that time. Yeah, actually, I can remember that. That that was almost word for word what happened. And obviously, it's, it's, I don't know if it's scarred or seared in my brain, one of the two. But, yeah, so we were all sitting on the set. So Lamlash Street had, um, there was a big green door, and then there was like a little square area, and then there was about four or five steps down to the street. So um, I was sitting there, my little gang, it was myself and Anthony um, and the three other people in, in the gang. And so um, what they, so two of the gang were, were boyfriend and girlfriend. So they, they had done all this kissing stuff before. And, and so me and Anthony were in this sort of relationship. We didn't quite know what they even meant. So he came along one day and it happened to be um, Valentine's Day. And he came along and uh, he, um, and I, oh no, I, I was dared. That's right. I was. We were dared to kiss, and we were sitting there. And um, I can remember thinking, "Oh, this is really embarrassing." I said, "What am I going to do?" And we we're all sitting there on the steps like this. And I said, "Oh God, no, 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 no." Anyway, so they encouraged us to kiss. So we, we, we. I was just thinking, "Oh, this is the most stupid thing in the whole world to do." I mean, what, what, what does this really mean? You know, just about gets the kiss part. And Mum must have been watching from upstairs. She said, "What are they doing down there?" You know, because it was like a, a three-story house. And so I heard this rattling on the windows and the windows used to move as well because it went terribly um, airtight at all. 
And uh, so she goes, knock, 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 knock. And it's like, oh, what's going on? Said, tea time, tea, oh, up you come now, come on, up you come. And that was it. And then it's like, oh, okay, that's fine. So just more embarrassment, really. <laughs> so um, that was my first romantic interlude in life. <laughs> so. I just think it's funny when you were talking about how Anthony had given you the Valentine, the little hearts. And you didn't like, why is he giving these to me? Like you did, had no idea what was going to happen. Not a sweet clue. No, I, I, I think and I, I, the fact that when I was writing the book, um, I could still remember that stuff. That wasn't anything that I spoke to anybody else about. I could, it was in my head, in my, in my memories, right? And so, um, yeah, so it was Valentine's Day and I'd always thought Valentine's Day was really, really stupid. Like, oh, it's Valentine's Day, all these silly things going on at school sort of thing. Anyway, so he just walked up to me one day and he just sort of shoved this thing into my hand and it was this little square. You can still get them, a little square that had four Valentine's um, uh, hearts in, in love hearts in them. And I opened it later on and I thought, well, this is really stupid. Why on earth is he giving me sweets? I could just go and get my own sweets. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it took me about an hour, an hour and a half to process this to think, Oh my God, you might actually think of me like a sort of a girlfriend. Well, this is a major step forward. I never thought this before. But yeah, I was very slow on this stuff. Probably still am, actually, as well as I know. Now, you talked about having kids, your own kids. Did you bring any of the traditions that you grew up with, passed them down to your kids? Um, I think Christmas is special to me. Um, it was then and it still is now. And that's actually the book starts and finishes with Christmas. It starts in Christmas 1962 and finishes in 1963. And I absolutely love Christmas. You know, you have the full Christmas dinner. You you let um, the kids get up at the crack of dawn. They can eat chocolate until they, they burst. That's fine. That's, that's what happens on Christmas Day. It's wall-to-wall -wall food, you know, the whole day. I miss the Christmas parties. Mm. I absolutely love the Christmas parties we had, and I and there wasn't just an, there weren't enough family members around for that sort of thing in this day and age. Um, so I did love the Christmas parties, but yeah, I, I do. I mean, uh, Christmas dinner is important to me. Dressing well is it still important to me. Um, never buy secondhand clothes because you don't do that sort of thing. Uh, when we went on holidays, um, even. Well, we used to go on really nice holidays. Well, we used to go to Walt Disney World when he was younger, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but they were not very nice hotels. We, if if there was some negotiation about, well, maybe we should cut back on expenses and have a like a two star hotel to go to. Like, no, 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 we can't do that. <laughs> so, uh, it probably cost a small fortune, but you know, it was just the way I was raised. So, the attitude towards life, yes, definitely those standards, those values were. I've kept with me, obviously. Now let's talk about, you said it's very important in the book that you wanted to get your uncle's stories down. So let's talk about the impact because it seemed like in the, in the book, you were like saying every time that you ever really just wanted to get away or you just wanted to kind of be with somebody that would listen, you would go to your uncle and your uncle would talk to you, but then he would also tell you stories about what happened during the war. Yeah, so what happened was um, Uncle was one of the few people that wasn't lecturing me on, well, you know, children should be seen and not heard, or, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Whenever I wanted to talk about some about my feelings, really, about, oh, I'm really disappointed with this, or I don't understand that, he would treat me as an adult and, and say, well, what do you mean about that, and let's talk about it. And that I valued. That is the advantage of having a multi-generational family, large family home. Because 
what happens is that when your mum is going a little strange for the day for some reason or you've really you know in the dog house with her and it's like oh gosh now what I'm going to do you have someone else to go and talk to so I always used to go downstairs to my aunt and uncle and my aunt used to go upstairs talk to mum about whatever the issue was and uncle was down there so yeah he shared a lot of those um, wartime stories with me um, and what amazed me about uncle was he was the nicest man I've ever met very friendly he would talk to anybody and everybody he used to drive my aunt nuts because he was always talking to somebody but he um very pleasant almost a shy sort of person very jovial yet the things he went through in the second world war were awful he was on the atlantic convoy uh, he was he was in the merchant navy um in the second world war so he was on the the um, atlantic convoy the atlantic convoy was because Britain didn't have enough food and supplies to keep the nation going, they were starving, basically. They had to grow their own vegetables and do what they could for themselves mm -hmm. because there just wasn't enough. People were really thin in those days because they were on a subsistence diet, really. Um, but it still took an awful lot of raw materials and foods from the US to, to get to England. And they had to obviously go across the Atlantic and the U-boats were in, in the Atlantic trying to stop this because they wanted to, the, the Germans wanted to take over England, basically, the Nazis. Um, and so Uncle was on one of these boats coming back from New York and the convoy was hit by the U-boats. And he said it was awful because the boats that were hit, obviously some of the sailors ended up in the water with the life jackets and that on. They were not allowed to stop and pick the men up. So basically he was 17, 18 years old and he was looking at, you know, the, the Atlantic and the icy blackness and the oil and everything else that was in there because the, the boats had been, been blown up and they weren't even allowed to pick up people. They couldn't stop because once they stopped, they were then the next targets. Um, so he went through those sorts of things. He went, they went, a lot of people went through horrendous things during the war, but he was one of the people that was always, you would never not know it, he, I think if you go through terrible things in life, you go one of two ways. You either, either gets to you and you become a bitter and cynical person, or you take it the other way and you realize life is short and you have to make the most of what you have. And that's what he did. He made the most of what he had, always smiling, always happy to see me and my brother. They didn't have their own children, any children of their own. Um, so we were sort of their substitute children. Um, but he was always happy to see me, always listened to me, always gave me time. And I think when you're that age, um, that's a very that's very valuable to have. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was when we moved away, um, and it was just mum and dad, and they lost their family supports because they didn't have family around them. We didn't have family around us. It was a much more stressful life mm -hmm. because if mum or dad were stressed they sometimes were a little offhand with us and we had nobody to go to. Mm -hmm. Our family had all disappeared and that was really hard on us. So, um, yeah. So let's talk about the family disappeared, not be, not by any way mean falling out, but because they had to move to get to where the jobs were basically, correct? Yeah, that's right. So what you have to remember is that, the family weren't, we weren't professionals. Nobody had a, any academic background. There wasn't a plan B. They were people who had found jobs straight from school, 15, 16 years old, the men. 
they didn't have a lot of transferable skills is what we would call them now so they they worked with this card factory and they had their seniority there and they knew everybody and the card factory moved so they had to move with it or then try to find work elsewhere and um, that, like I said they didn't have any other skills so that's how the family broke up the family broke up because they had to go where work was and that was happening all over actually that happens a lot in England these cities that were heavily bombed like Coventry, London and there were a few others um, even with the help from the US with the Marshall Plan to help restart the economy it wasn't enough there wasn't enough housing um, the infrastructure that the buildings were gone a lot of them the, the businesses I mean the, the business that the card factory was in they still had like the, the blackout tape on the windows and and nobody you know still outside toilets um, nothing inside like, it was very very archaic compared to say the standard living in the US at the time very very archaic but that that's just the way it was um, so that what they did was they, they tried to build um, what they called new towns so new houses uh, new businesses tax advantages and all those sorts of things um, but they were like 50 60 miles outside London which in those days no internet no emails uh, no zoom no no contact electronically it was all just paper and, and a stamp and an envelope and put it through the mail it was you lost contact with people all the time even telephones in your home were a rarity at that time and very very expensive and obviously no cell phones nothing that was just we didn't even see that one coming that was so far in the dark ages right so um it was it was difficult but you know what else can you do you no know, you're just you're trying to survive that's really what you're trying to do trying to survive make the best decisions you can for the children and um hope it all turns out fine yeah. now so the the listeners and the viewers can know describe exactly what the house was like because in the beginning i thought it was an apartment building but then as you continued on talking in the book i realized it was actually just like a three-story house correct it was a large victorian house it had um there were okay there were it was a ground floor um uh, which is first floor where you are yes yeah, so it was three stories up and it had a, a basement as well the the basement was a separate apartment but it was a three-story house basically so we had bedrooms on the top floor um, my brother and I were in those two bedrooms. Uh, my brother's room always leaked. There was always a bucket in the middle of the room and somebody had drilled a hole so the ceiling wouldn't collapse from all the water in it. <laughs> um, when it rains, it would drip and then we would empty the bucket out the next day. <laughs> this was all normal life. Mm -hmm. We thought we had it great because we had a room each, you know, it was wonderful for us. Um, large living room 10 foot ceilings um the heat was from the, the fireplaces and the cold you put coal on and uh, hope for the best i was talking to my cousin the other day and he said he said yeah every time we went around your house he said it was freezing cold he said it, it was you had to like put an extra couple of layers of um, cardigans and things on just to keep warm um, and it was cold um the only bathroom was down on the main floor so we had little potties under the bed for bathrooms overnight. <laughs> so, um, and it sounds like the dark ages now, but we thought it was okay at the time to be honest. Um, the, the, as I said earlier, the washing machine wasn't plumbed into the wall or anything. We had to drag it out into the middle of the floor, physically fill it up 
and then scoop out with buckets to empty it out again. Um, no, we had a tin bath. There wasn't a proper bathroom. We did have an inside toilet, though, which meant we were very, very lucky. That was one of the premium things we had in the house. Um, and then you go down another floor. So that was the bedrooms at the top. Mum's bedroom was on the main floor with the kitchen and the living room. And then we had another floor down, which is where auntie and uncle live. It's a suite. Um, so they had two large rooms at the front, bedroom, living area. And a room at the back, which is a kitchen and a scullery. The scullery is a place where you have a large sink for preparing vegetables. <laughs> and if you're rich enough, that's where the maid prepares the vegetables. In our case, we did the preparation. And they did have an inside bathroom as well. Um, but there were rats running up and down the outside of the house. I mean, not constantly. Um, but the, the people who lived in the basement had mould growing up the walls of their, their apartment. And they had, um, there were rats that would run up and down the drain pipes at night. So you had to keep the windows closed. Uh, so it was right now, you know, if you look at it now, it seems to be terrible, terrible housing. But we were relatively happy there, to be honest. Um, we were all, I mean, I was speaking to my brother about when I was writing the book. He said, yeah, I really liked Lamlash Street. He said, it was, um, there was something about it. But I think we were surrounded by family is what it was. So as terrible as the situation was, and as substandard by our, our standards now, we really were quite happy there. And, and as kids, you just accept it all as normal, don't you, really? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, you know, because you didn't know any different. So you weren't like, oh, well, this is this, and you know, the little potty underneath the bed. You didn't know any different. It was no. like, that's just normal. And the only reason why you guys moved from there was because your aunt and uncle moved where the factory is being built and your mom didn't like the fact that someone stranger was living in the house and be able to come up to your apartment, correct? Well, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, there, because there was no connect, there were no doors between. It was literally just a suite inside the house where auntie and uncle were. And then um, they moved out. And then about a week later, this, I can remember this, this, tiny little lady I mean she looked like she was like 90 to me I have no idea how old she was but she was a frail little old lady was shuffling up and down the hallway between the kitchen and, and the bedroom and mum took one look at it and said no we're moving now I thought oh okay <laughs> that's fine and um, the interesting thing about when we did move though was that mum had decided that we were no longer going to rent a house and this caused so much fuss within the family she said, no, it's silly, you know, why, why would you pay rent every month when you can pay for a mortgage? And said, oh, you don't want to get a house with a mortgage. It's a millstone around your neck. You'll never dig your way out of that. It'll be the worst thing you ever did. Anyway, mum being mum went ahead and did it anyway. Despite all the, all the family members, you know, the, the sisters, the brothers, and they're all older than her, said, no, no, no. She said, no, nope, we're doing it. <laughs> all right, Ivy, if that's what you want then but you wait and see, you know, one of those. Um, and so when we did move out, so we moved down to Bexley Heath, which is where we went to next, and which is where I am now, actually. Um, we, um, she, I don't know how we got the mortgage on the house. They, I have no idea, because there wasn't the money there, I can tell you that. But they, they made it through. Um, and that's because of mum's determination. We grew all of our own vegetables. We couldn't afford to buy any, so we grew all our own vegetables but we weren't paying rent. And I think partly for mum, 
because the family had said, no, Ivy, you know, you're going to regret this. She thought, no, I'm not going to regret this. I know exactly what I'm doing. And uh, so she was very stubborn, which does tend to run in the family. I can tell you that as well. We're all stubborn. <laughs> very stubborn. So, uh, so it could be a good thing. I don't know. So let's talk about the last Christmas that you spent at the house. One thing that really stuck out to me was when um, the the queen, her majesty does the Christmas message and talked about how she wasn't, she was using it on TV, but because she was pregnant, she couldn't be seen. Now that kind of just struck out to me because really you don't think twice about it now seeing a pregnant person on TV. But that, that fact that that little part in the book was like, wow. And which one was she pregnant with at the time too? I was wondering. Oh, uh, well, it would have been Charles. I would think, oh no, hang on, 63. No, Charles would have been, oh no, Charles and Anne were before she was the queen. Must have been Andrew, probably Andrew, I'm thinking. But yeah, no, that was, that was because uh, I did a little bit of research around it as well, because mum couldn't remember that, that little bit of detail. So I, I looked that one up actually. And it's like, right, because she was in confinement, you see, you used to call it confinement. So when um, your clothes no longer hid the fact that you were pregnant, you were confined. It's basically confined to the house. You know, isolation like we've all been through the past year right <laughs> um but yeah and uh, because of that and they didn't want to you know stress her and so on uh, it was only like five minutes long the speech it was just a merry christmas happy new year and a few other words you know my husband and i and that sort of thing and that was it um so yes but we, no she wasn't on tv that year so um, which was sort of cute but that's what i I, 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 when I hear people saying things like you've just said about that really made you think about how different things were then, that to me is why I'm so happy I actually have some of this down on paper because, yeah, when I, when I read that, I thought, oh, that, that's different. Um, and I think it, it gives us a sense of hope, hopefully, that things have improved over the years. We have a ways to go in terms of women's rights and how we treat minorities and so on. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But if you can just wind the clock back and live that life for a week, you would be astounded as to how far we have come. And I, because I, I hear it from, from my, my son, right? He says, oh, well, you know, mum, the world's terrible. I think, yeah, but if you had lived the life that I had, and you could compare, you know, you could just go back there for a week and just exchange places with me. You would be astounded at the, um, the double standards that were going on and the uh, stereotyping that was so, 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 uh, uh, you know, prevalent then. I can remember, um, actually, it's quite funny. If you look back at pictures of the, the Beatles in the 1960s, um, there's some interviews where they're saying to some of the Beatles, they're saying, well, your hair is so long, don't they confuse you with, with being a woman? And you're looking at their hair and they're sort of like this length. <laughs> and you're thinking, what are they talking about? But it was very much just after the war. Everyone, well, men had short back and sides. Women had long hair. Women still wore hats and they had gloves. And they always wore dresses and skirts. They did not wear trousers. Only men wore trousers. Now, the, the teenagers of the time could wear trouser suits, but that's only that generation. Women did not wear trousers at all. And now we hardly wear anything else, really. Yeah. So what's up next for you now that you've gotten this book out? Well, what's been fascinating about it is that people would come up to me in the street, like where, where I live right now, and say, um, what happened to Anthony next? Can you tell me? And I'm thinking... 
people care about the characters mm-hmm. and the personalities that you write about. Um, and, and they said, so what happened when you left Lamlash and you moved on? And so I decided that I'm going to have to write a sequel, to be honest. <laughs> and, and I think it's useful in a sense as well, because I've spoken to a lot of people about, um, do you remember I, when I was talking, if they re- read the book and said, oh, yes, um, it must have been terrible when you had to move. And then they talk about their experiences of doing the same thing, of how sad they were and how lonely they were when they lost their families because it wasn't just my family doing this, everybody was doing this, moving out to these new towns. And so uh, for me, that was encouraging that um, people could identify with it. Um, So, um, yeah. So we get to find out what happened to Anthony in your sequel then. (laughs) Yes, maybe. (laughs) Actually, people have said to me, they said, so are you still in touch with Anthony? I said, well, no, I said that was 60 odd years ago. Um, and he said, but, um, you know, do you know what happened to him? I said, no, I said, I mean, for all I know, the poor man could be dead by now. I don't know. It's a long time ago, you know. <laughs> but if anybody's thinking of writing their family stories, when you get that sort of feedback from other people, it does make it all worthwhile, to be honest. It really does. Yeah, because honestly, I was like, oh, yes, finally. And I'm like, oh, wait a second, she moved away. What happened to it? <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's a new experience, but an enjoyable one. And I thoroughly, enjoy, I actually even like rereading the, the story, the book now, because, um, oh, the, one other thing is the, the pictures on the front of the book, um, these are actually family pictures. So this one is um, is me at school. Okay. Uh, this is actually Lamlash Street itself. Ooh. And these are the love hearts, which is the um, the, the interest, you know, the, the romance interest. Mm-hmm. But it was nice for me that I could actually put a couple of family photographs um, on the front cover of the book, something I never, ever thought I would ever do in a million years. But it's been um, it was a struggle to get to the end, but it's well, well worth it to to go down that road. I I recommend it to anybody. So you talked about being the person that. So I guess you are kind of like your mom doing something that you've never done before. I think that's how your mom kind of molded you into that right oh yes yeah I'd, i'm always i'm sometimes surprised that she was hoping for a more traditional daughter when in fact she was such a trailblazer i don't think she really saw it the way i saw it i said to i've said to her numerous times especially over the past couple of years and when we had you no know, time and she was a little bit frailer than that Mum, you were a real trailblazer. Like you did things that other women would not do in your day. And she's like, Well, I suppose I did. And sort of, you know, so well, you know, I suppose it was, but she was. And then I said, Well, Mum, if, if you did that, why are you surprised I'm doing this? You know, I mean, you you that's the way you raised me. In other words, it's your fault, you know. <laughs> but uh, but mum did read the book, by the way. And although she passed away in January, she read the manuscripts before it went to the editing process. And she read it and she was smiling from ear to ear the whole time she read the book. So that for me was nice that I not only managed to get the stories down, but mum had seen the book before she passed on. So it's, it's, it's been a real comfort to me, actually, in lots of ways. Um, having lost her, I still have the stories. So um, my brother's reading the book right now. So um, that's a good sign as well. I love the fact that you said your mom got to read it before she passed away, because that was one of the things on the top of my head was, what did she think about it? When you said she was smiling from ear to ear, that just made you feel so good. 
I did, but I was doing some paper corrections because I, I printed the whole book on, oh, I just run through do some corrections. And I couldn't get through them fast enough. I said, can I have the next page and the next, oh, what, I'll make a cup of tea, ma'am. Just give me a few minutes sort of thing. But she loved it. And she literally, I said, well, what did you think of it, mum? Oh, it was quite good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what some mums are like, right? Uh -huh. understated, yeah. So our time is almost up. Tell uh -huh. people where they can find you at. Uh, well, I have a, a website which is jmphillipsauthor.com and there you can see some photographs of my family um, and a little bit about them as well um, so um, that, that I think that's a good place to start with also if you wanted to contact me direct there's my if you scroll down to the bottom you can actually email me and the book is available at um, Amazon iBooks um, which, you know, in all three countries, I actually have, it's on amazon.co.uk.ca for Canada and also .com as well. I just put part of it up, but then I was like, oh my goodness, I forgot to put the author in there first. I had to <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you for coming on and chatting with us about this book because this book is like i said it's a quick read so if everybody's looking for something to maybe read this summer during the beach um it's a quick read you can read it while lying on the beach and and watching or if you just have a few minutes or you're waiting for doctor's appointments or things like that because i know in COVID times we have to sit outside at least in the united states we have to sit outside in our cars waiting for our appointment time. So this is a great. Oh, read. yes, same here, same here, yeah. So it's a great read. So it's called A Lamb Last Street. And Jill, I wanna thank you so much for being on. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And whenever you have another book come out, let me know, I would love to chat with you again. Okay, that's great. You take okay. care now. All right, you too. So guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Bye. Bye-bye now. Y'all, this particular episode, I really enjoyed chatting with Jill. I had her pick out a part in her book that I said, you know, you read a part of your book, you choose what you want to read because I thought, you know what, with authors that's come on, they're really trying to talk about their books and they're talking about all the different things and the, the reasoning behind the book. But I feel like when you hear an author read their own words, it means more and it impacts you more. So I'm glad that Jill totally picked out what she wanted to read and you actually will get a sense of what she's like in this book because it's written from her point of view. It's written, written as she was growing up in the 62, 63, in the 60s in England after World War II. Some of the things that you, we would not even be thinking about today happened to her, and it's just amazing to sit here and listen to her. I could have gone on and chatting with her all day long, but unfortunately, I have a little time limit. I try to keep these chats from like around an hour, so that way you're not so like, oh my gosh, I need to, need to chat more, or I don't have time to do this. I will tell you this much. Here's a little, little tidbit. If you are listening on normal speed and you really want to get through an interview, you hear the same things if you do one and a half times. You actually get it through quite a bit quicker than you would before. So 
I want to thank you for being part of the podcast family. I will put the information for her book in the show notes as well as where you can contact her. And please like, leave a rating or review wherever you listen to, subscribe to it as well. I really appreciate everything that you're doing to support me. Um, we're coming up on one year of Chats in the Block Cabin, which I cannot believe. Um, stay tuned for some really cool sneak peek little segments behind the scenes, um, especially if you follow me on Instagram, Frugal Mom, and at Chats from the Blog Cabin. Um, so thank you so much. Be blessed. And remember, keep chatting.